0: Good morning. Well, you guys are alive. was <laughs> not a huge, wonderful blessing to be led in worship by such an eclectic worship team this morning of students and adults and how, what a great representation of who we are as a faith community and uh, the multi-generations that we have here that God is calling and blessing and Uh, As we learn more about who we are and who God is calling us to be, it's just so exciting to see uh, even our students stepping in and taking a leadership role to lead us in worship this morning. As we continue to worship God by looking into his word, would you take a moment and pray with me again and ask God through his Holy Spirit to be present not only in the words that I've prepared and through his word, but in each of our hearts and our minds that he would speak to us just that word that we need to hear from him this morning. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we are in awe of the ways that you weave us together as community, the ways that you call uh, different people to use their gifts in different ways, whether they be students or young adults or senior adults or all those in between. God, we are humbled by your ongoing mercy and grace that follows us through all of the changes in our lives. And as we are in this uh, new season of life as a church, God, would you continue to, through your Spirit, speak into our hearts and our minds those things that you want us to know about your heart for us, your heart for this community in which you've planted us, and your heart for the world, as we've just heard with the Rafiki Foundation and all those who are called by you to travel uh, across the street and across the globe to extend the mercy, the love, the care, and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ in whose name we pray this morning. Amen. For those of you who've been following with us through this series on a journey of faith, you are probably picking up on a recurring idea that change is inevitable. You don't have to be alive on this planet very long to know that change happens. Whether you want it to happen or you don't want it to happen, every day brings a new opportunity for change. Now, the fact that change happens presents us with a challenge because sometimes change is not necessarily positive change. There are tragedies that happen, like what's happening in Africa with the Ebola virus. Their lives are forever changed because of this disease that is spreading, and and we're getting afraid because we might be in the crosshairs of this really deadly, difficult virus. And, and so even in our country, we're starting to see a few cases come up. And, and what will it mean for us if we have an outbreak of Ebola? How will it change us? On the other hand, some changes are positive. We know that every day that a child grows, they they change in, in size and they change in, in personality and they change in their understanding. And even us adults, we are always changing. We're learning new things. We're getting older. We're dealing with ear hair and things that we didn't have a couple years ago. Our, our, our hair is like thinning or graying or all different kinds of changes are always happening. We live daily and weekly and yearly with change. And yet change can be scary because we don't always know whether it's going to be a positive or a negative and so we become afraid and we live fearful of what is the change going to mean for us how are we going to handle the change our church has been in a season of change and in many ways we we've come through a a a chapter where where now we have a new pastor and and we can kind of rest in the in the fact that this season of turmoil and and chaos has has kind of come to a point where we can now settle in and go okay that that's over When in reality, a a new leader steps in and and new change comes. And and so some of us might be a little anxious and and fearful. We're excited for the new things, but but are we going to like the change? Is it going to be good for us, or is it going to be bad for us? We don't know. You see, all change involves some measure of risk. Because change means we lose what was in order to receive what is coming. And the idea of having to let go of what we've had, especially if it's something that we've enjoyed, that we've appreciated, that we've valued, that has been good for us, the idea of letting go of that leads us to a sense of potential loss or or grief. And and, and dealing with grief, as as many of us know, is, is itself a difficult process. So how do you, you grieve the loss of, of what was while also being excited and joyful for the new thing that's coming? Well, I'd like to suggest to you today that, that we can do both at the same time if our focus is not on our circumstances and our, and our own wants and our own needs, but on, on God who has the larger picture and the larger view of how he wants to bless us and weave us together to make us a blessing to others so that his kingdom can be expanded and that the whole world can be blessed through his people. As we've walked on this journey of faith together in this series, we're we're learning that that the cycles of life, as they come, God is at work in and through each cycle, stretching us, growing us, changing us to be more than we were yesterday. And so even sometimes it might be difficult to, to lose some things of the past, we can also be excited and joyful for the things that God is doing and the new things that we get to experience that maybe we didn't even realize were on our journey with God. You see, on the journey of faith, whether good or bad, God is at work in and through all of the changing seasons of our life. As we've been following the story of the people of God in in the Old Testament, last week we we looked at Joseph and we understood how he had these recurring cycles of ups and downs and difficulties and God was present in and through it all. And, And ultimately God used all of the challenges of his life to bless the people of Israel in a time of famine, to rescue them and save them from dying out. By bringing them to Egypt, where, where Joseph had been able to prepare food and a place to welcome them and, and all the nations of the, the surrounding area in Egypt because of this difficult season that was happening. If you go on from the book of Genesis and you get into the book of, of Exodus, what, what we discover is that not only did God rescue them and bring them there, but he blessed the people of Israel in Egypt. And they grew and they multiplied and they became a great nation. But over time, things began to change the pharaoh who was really tight with joseph died and and another pharaoh had taken over and in fact they were there for 400 years with with cycles of change and new leadership coming and, and a new leader had taken over who didn't know joseph and didn't remember joseph and he looked at the the people of israel spreading in egypt and growing and he became afraid of the changes that were happening And in reaction, he said, we better do something about these Hebrews, because if we allow them to continue to multiply and grow, and they sometime turn on us, they could go and join an enemy and and launch a revolt, and they could be a threat to what we have here in Egypt. So he began to oppress them. He began to enslave them. He began to give them the hardest jobs and the most difficult labor, and he had his His sergeants and his governors and his managers whipped them and beat them into manual labor that was difficult and hard. And the harder they beat them and the more they enslaved them, the Bible says, the faster they grew. And so finally he said, this isn't working. The only way that we can start to do the, you know, anything about this is we have to start killing them off. And so he talks to the midwives, who are the, the, the women who are in the birth chambers with the people of Israel. As the women are giving birth, every male baby that comes out, kill it. And only let the, the girl babies live. But the midwives are like, we're not doing that, no way. So they, they, they didn't obey Pharaoh. And, and so Pharaoh gets mad, and so he passes a decree Beyond just asking the midwives to do this, he says all male Hebrew babies will be thrown into the Nile River. And then we pick up the story at the second chapter of Exodus where we see this Hebrew Jewish family who has this baby under this edict of all the male babies will be killed. And what are they going to do? And it says, now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now, we're not given their names here, but later in Exodus and in Numbers, they, they, they tell us that it's Amram and, and Jacobed. And Amram and Jacobed give birth to a son. And, and, and Jacobed, when she saw that he was a fine child, and what mother doesn't look at their baby and see how fine and beautiful and joyful they are. In this new bundle of joy in her arms, and realizing that it has been decreed in the land that, that this baby is supposed to be thrown into the Nile River. And so she hid him for three months. She did the best that she could. She tried to keep him from crying. She she gave him things to suck on so he wouldn't make noise. She had a little place where she could put a little blanket over him if some uh, soldiers were walking by. She did her best, and she and her husband tried to protect him and keep him safe from this big, bad world that was out there to get him. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And she placed her child in it And put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. This is... of the water. Now before we dive a little deeper into this story, I just feel like it's important to take a pause and recognize that as we've gone through some of the stories of the people of Israel, we've talked about a whole lot of men. But it's it would be a mistake to not mention that along with all these men who are primarily mentioned because it was a patriarchal culture and they were the, the leaders of their household and the leaders of their family, there's a whole bunch of faithful women who have also been people of influence, who have been people of faith, who have been leaders in their families and in their communities. And we, we, we've heard mention of them in the stories of Sarah and Hagar and Leah and Rachel and their uh, maid servants, Zilpah, and um, I'm forgetting what Zilpa's other <laughs> counterpart was. But they have these women who have been going along through these stories with, with all of them being behind-the-scenes risk-takers. And here we come along to the story where we have this mother who the Bible highlights and pulls out of the story. And yes, this is the story of Moses, who is one of the, the greatest leaders of the people of Israel. He, he was the one who led them out of slavery. But, but before we get to Moses, the Bible wants us to pause and take a, a look at his mother. Because Moses, by all rights, never should have even survived if it wasn't for the faith of Moses' mom, who beyond all odds believed God, that God would in- care for her son, that God could uh, bring him out of this, uh, this risk of death. And, and the Bible highlights this wonderful woman, who they don't even mention her name at this point. It's Moses' mom. Jochebed meaning Yahweh is glory, comes out and gives us a, another example of what it's like to live on this faith journey with God and to trust Him in the face of some of the most difficult and horrendous experiences. Now, you know, we read these stories and we don't really have any personal experiences to really uh, relate to them. But Charles Swindoll, in his book on Moses, uh, really, I think, hits the nail on the head when he says we, we in our culture, have to really think back more to, to Nazi Germany, And the experience of the Jews under Hitler where there was this slow progression where where they began to be moved into different neighborhoods. And then they began to have to wear armbands and be identified as somehow different. And, And we know the story how that progressed ultimately to train cars being shipped off to concentration camps and ovens and gases and death. These Bible stories, while they seem so far and ancient, really aren't any different than the time and the culture that we live in today. These same kind of atrocities are possible today. And we live in the face of of these fears, and we live in the face of the threat of nuclear annihilation and Ebola and all kinds of risks. That our children face, and we fear for them, and we feel anxious for them, and we want to protect them from from the music that's out there, and the lyrics, and and the drugs, and the alcohol, and the whole scene in the world out there. And we we are afraid, and we're anxious, and we want to protect them. We want to hide them from the world. And here we have a set of parents who who face the, the worst possible scenario. And as we look at their lives, we recognize that sometimes in the face of seemingly overwhelming odds, stepping out on the journey of faith requires that you got to take a risk. Sometimes you just got to take a risk. It also shows us that often it's not risk for our own gain, but it's risk on behalf of somebody else. So often in our American culture, we're taught to, to, to stand up for number one, grab what you can get, seize the day. Focus on number one. And here we have two Hebrew parents who are sacrificing of themselves for their child so that their child can have a future and a life. And the third thing that we can see from this is it's not only the upfront leaders, the, the ones with their, their names on the bulletin, or on the website, but it's often the people behind the scenes who take risks on behalf of other people who allow those people to go on and do great things. I could not be standing here in front of you today if it weren't for a whole host of people, a cloud of witnesses who have sacrificed for my good and to protect me and to save me from myself and from the the evils of this world. Let's take a look at the first one. Sometimes in the face of seemingly overwhelming odds, stepping out on the journey of faith requires that you've got to take a risk. Risk is difficult because just inherent in what it is, it opens the possibility, as we've said, of losing something that we value, losing something that's important to us, losing something that we cherish and treasure. And this idea of losing what, what, we, what we once had or, or something that is in our control brings us a lot of anxiety and fear, and fear is the enemy of faith. The challenge is so often when we don't realize that we live in the face of change day in and day out, as people we are often living in fear. And we're spending our lives trying to protect ourselves against the next change that could be the next negative thing in our life. And so we grab onto control, we, we hold on tight to our bank accounts, we try and uh, smother our kids and, and keep them from being able to live their lives. We hold on to church as we've known it because we can't let go of, of the way things have been because we don't know it might all go to pot. And so we try and take life by our own hands, take the reins ourselves, and and somehow think that if we can hold on tight enough, if we can just manage things well enough, that we can steer this ship in the right direction. But we know that's not true, right? We've tried it, we've done it, and yet we keep doing it over and over again because we're afraid, and it's fear that becomes the enemy of faith. I think what we learn from these people of faith in the Bible is that if we can begin to let go of our fear, let go of our need to control, let go of our uh, illusion that somehow we can manage and control the outcome of our lives, we discover a a lightness and a freedom to be able to trust that God is a God who not only loves us, but he truly wants the best for us and, and can manage our lives well. God is a trustworthy steward of our lives if we will have the faith to entrust our lives to him. If we will have the faith to entrust our kids to him. If we will have the faith to entrust our church to him. If we will have the faith to trust ourselves to him. Jacob had faith in God's protection of her baby. Only because she trusted in God could she even imagine putting that baby into that basket and putting it out on the water and letting it drift on down the river. I can't even imagine seeing Lucas as that little bundle of joy. I mean, we have pictures of him wrapped in his baby blanket, and he's, he's almost laying in the palm of my hand. He was so tiny, his little head. Sending him down the river? But what were her options? Either let him die and be thrown into the river, or to to build a, an ark to build a boat of safety to build a boat of rescue that she had obviously heard the stories that, that, that God rescues people from floods, God rescues people from deep waters, God rescues people from seemingly impossible situations and so she puts him in the basket and she sends him down the river and she sends his sister to watch over him now that really points out there are really three women in this story who play a significant role not only is Jacobet a woman of faith but his sister is willing to step out and take a risk she's walking up to Pharaoh's daughter and her slaves and her servants and, and she's inserting herself into the, the court of Pharaoh and says, hey, you know, you want me to go get a Hebrew woman to nurse him for you? Wow, that's a great idea. Would you go do that? I mean, we don't know how old Miriam was, but, I mean, she couldn't have been more than maybe a middle school teenager. And here she is listening to her mother, trying to help her mother, trying to save her little brother, stepping out in faith, taking a huge risk to go out of her comfort zone on behalf of someone else. And as a result, God moves the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. She sees Moses, and she has compassion on him. And she knows what the edict is. She knows this is a Hebrew baby. She knows what circumcision looks like. And she says, I'm going to take him in because I don't want him to die either. And so we have these women of faith, one not even realizing that she was a woman of faith, responding to what I assume is the Holy Spirit prompting her to take in this little Hebrew baby and to take him as her own. Jacob knew that God would take care of her child. And I think one of the primary lessons that we have to recognize as, as... we're looking for these patterns of faith in these stories is that until we come to the end of ourselves in our own strength and our own power and our own ability to manage our lives we can never really come to know the power of God who wants to come in and do things that we couldn't do on our own or ever imagine it's not about what we can do it's about what God wants to do through us John Gardner says one of the reasons why mature people stop growing and learning is that they become less and less willing to risk the possibility of failure in their lives. Hudson Taylor, a great missionary, man of faith, who founded the China Inland Mission, said, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. Unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there's no need for faith. You see, I think that too often we talk about how we have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, how we have this relationship with Jesus, but we want Him to sit in the back seat of the car while we drive. There's a great youth speaker when I went to, to Chick when I was a teenager. Our teenagers are going to have a chance to go to Chick this next summer. It's our, our, our triannual uh, high school youth conference that, that, that happens. And, and I still remember the speaker when I was a teenager. Chick told the story that, that imagine you're, you're driving along the road in your car, and you see this guy walking along the road, and you're getting close, and you realize, hey, that's Jesus. And so you pull over, and you, you throw open the door, and you say, Hey, Jesus, come on, get in the car. Let's ride for a while. And Jesus says, Oh, oh, thanks, but, but I can't. Oh, Jesus, come on. Why, why did not you just get in and ride for a while? You're, you're right here. I've got the car. You don't have to walk. Just get in. Oh, I, 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 I wish I could, but, but I can't. Jesus, why? why? Why won't you get in the car? You're, you're hurting my feelings. And Jesus looks at you in the eye and he says, because I don't ride, I drive. <laughs> How many of us in our American car culture love to be the one behind the wheel? We feel in control. We feel like we're the ones who can manage the, the, the destination, All the while, the invitation that Jesus gives us to come and follow him, to be his disciples, is to say you can let go of the need to to control. You can sit in the passenger seat and just enjoy the ride because he's the Lord. He's the master. He's the controller. He's the driver. He's the one that, that knows the map. He's got the GPS that will get us where we need to go. I was driving to a pastor's conference this week. We uh, have a monthly regional pastor's lunch and we get together, and I was driving along 412, and I was going out to Lacey, and I'd never been to Lacey, and so I had my GPS on because I wanted to make sure that I, I got to where I, I needed to go. 412, did I say 412? 512? Oh, 410 to 512. So I just follow the GPS. Thank you, thank you. Absolutely, I do have a great wife, James. She's a great wife. It's good to be family, isn't it? So, you know, like a typical person today i uh, think okay i'm driving in the car i've got my gps it's a great time to do some multitasking get some phone calling done out of the way and i know this is a hands-free state so i have my uh, iphone headphones in and i've got the thing going here and so i'm driving along and uh, uh, i'm talking and my gps comes on behind my phone conversation and says exit here on like highway 161 and i'm like oh no i gotta i gotta get over So I get over and I follow the sign because I'm concentrating on my phone call and it takes me up, that's on the hill over there, and it takes me off and dumps me on the side street. I'm like, why am I here? And I, I finally get off the phone call and I look at my GPS and it routed me on this surface street back over to 512 and on the way. And I'm like, why in the world would my GPS take me off 512 onto 161, which is a surface street, put me back on and keep going? It makes no sense. And I had the thought, I'm guessing it was God, I don't know that I should mention it this morning, and that there are times in our lives when God's GPS will take us to destinations that don't make sense to us. We don't know why we're going there. As we're planning our route, it's not the, the, the shortest distance between two points. It's not the fastest way to get where we want to go. But, but who knows? Maybe, maybe there would have been an accident on that curve around 512, and God spared me because I was talking and doing everything else. I, I, I don't know. But see, God knows. He's got the GPS that gets us where we really need to go, not only where we think we want to go. But you've got to have faith that God's GPS is accurate and that Jesus in the driver's seat can take care of getting us to our destination without an accident and without getting us off track. The second thing we said is it's often not risk for our own gain, but it's risk for somebody else's gain. And that's a, a huge upside-down value from the culture of this world. Jesus said, you know, it's rare that a person would sacrifice for a friend. It's even more rare that they'd sacrifice for somebody they don't know. And yet, he gave his life for us, even while we were still sinners, even while we weren't even thinking about God, he came on our behalf. Greatness has never been a solo act. I don't care how talented, how popular, how wonderful any uh, movie star, rock star, uh, Christian leader, Andy Stanley, Craig Rochelle, you name it. There is no one person who has become great as a solo act. They've got a whole host of people who have supported them, who have sacrificed them, who have blessed them and allowed them to stand on their shoulders to be who God has called them to be And it's the sacrifices of those many, many people, those moms, those dads, those grandpas and those grandmas who've who've sacrificed time and and money and and energy and and personal gain to invest in the lives of children and teenagers and young adults, young men and women who are going through difficult seasons of life who need somebody to come alongside them and tell them, hey, it's going to be okay. But in our busy, hectic world, if we don't have time to respond to God's GPS signal that turn here, meet with this person here, invest your life for a while in this person, we go through life sitting next to each other in pews every Sunday, but never really being community, never really knowing the troubles of the people sitting next to us, never being able to help bless one another and to sacrifice for one another in the ways that God might have. Behind every great man, behind every great woman is yet another person, a person who cared, a person who sacrificed, a person who took risks. And most often it's a loving parent or grandparent or friend, somebody that we already know who's already in our lives. The last point really was that not only upfront leaders, but it's often people behind the scenes who take risks on behalf of those who do great things, that's what we were just talking about. in the long list of notable people before the writer of Hebrews uh, mentions in uh, chapter 11. This is the, the, the place where we started last June, when we, when we talked about a journey of faith, and in chapter 12, he says, "Be since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Chapter 11 is, is the hall of faith, fame in the Bible where the the author goes back and he lists all of these people of faith, these pillars of of the community of faith, those who walked with God and, and trusted God. And you go through chapter 11 and you're looking at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And before you get to Moses, you see, he says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child And they were not afraid of the king's edict. They made it into the pantheon of faith giants. And they don't even have a name. Moses' parents. God honored Moses' mother's faith. He protected her child. He returned the child to her own care. She nursed him. She raised him until he was old enough to to be able to live on his own and then she had to send him off again. But because of her faith, can you imagine the joy that he was alive and that she could train him and tell him about God and and instill in him the faith that, that his story was a part of God's ongoing work so that we see later, and we'll talk about this next week, that even though Moses became a prince of Egypt, in his heart he was still a child of God, and he was a part of God's family. None of that would have happened had Moses' mom not been a woman of faith and who is now a great example for us. I don't know what change you're going through right now in your personal life, but you're in one because change is always happening. The question is, are you willing to take a risk to let go of the wheel and to trust God With whatever change is coming. To trust Him that whether it's hard or easy, whether it's good or bad, that He can work through it to bless you and to make you a blessing to other people. We as a church have been in a season of change, and there's more change coming. And I just want to be honest with you guys. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to come. It's inevitable, not because of me not because of you, because that's how God works. He is always inviting us to grow, to stretch, to step out into that new thing that he has for us, and that involves risk. And risk brings fear. And men and women, fear is the enemy of faith. And so don't be afraid, Don't be afraid of what's coming. Don't be afraid of of where God might lead. The the key is that that we have to be willing to, to sacrifice for one another and for God's kingdom so that we can see the goodness of God emerge in this place. You can't discover new oceans unless you have the courage to lose sight of the shore, one person said. Think about those ancient sailors as... They didn't have GPS. They had this sextant when they tried to read the stars and they sailed off from Europe and tried to navigate a flat world thinking they might fall off the end. Think about what it would be like to lose sight of land and to be out in that that big flat ocean not knowing where you're going or where your destination is. Apparently, there's a a map that's on display in the British Museum in London of an old Mariner's chart that was first drawn in 1525. It outlined the North American coastline and the adjacent waters that had been explored. And the cartographer made some intriguing notations on the map in the areas that hadn't quite been explored yet. And one said, here be giants. And here be fiery scorpions. And the other one said, Here be dragons. The article explained that eventually, uh, uh, that's connected with the map, that the map came into the possession of Sir John Franklin, a British explorer who in the early 1800s took the map and he had scratched out each one of those notations and he wrote, Here is God. How often do we live our lives like we're following that original map? Afraid of the giants and the dragons and the scorpions that are out there. Do we understand that God has already overcome the entire world? Here be God. How can we be afraid to to go anywhere? How could we be afraid to risk anything? How could we be afraid to trust the maker of the universe who's given his very life? so that we could be forgiven and be on this journey together with him. I'll leave you with a a quote from a a shipwrecked, uh, or from a Coast Guard captain in New England who was asked to be sent out with his team to go get this shipwreck into stormy, terrible seas. And and one of the members on his team said, we can't go, we'll never get back. And the captain looked at him and he said, we have to go out. We don't have to come back. We have to go out. We don't have to come back. Men and women, God is sending us out on a journey of faith to rescue lost and hurting and lonely people. We have to go out. But we don't have to come back because God has our lives in his hand. And because we know that eternity has already begun, we don't have to fear giants or scorpions or dragons. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So don't be afraid. Be willing to take a few risks and let's see what God's going to do. Amen? Let's pray.